will please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Our sermon passage for this morning is Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Let me read those verses for us, and then we'll pray once more. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now please join me now in prayer. God, your word says that the spirit gives life and the flesh is no help at all. So God, as we come to your word this morning, would your Holy Spirit give us life through it? Lord, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law, incline our hearts to listen carefully to what your word says? God, give us hearts that love and fear you As we see your glory in the face of your son, satisfy us with your grace and glory and steadfast love this morning. Help me as I preach to preach clearly and faithfully. Help us as we listen, Lord, to understand and to be changed. We ask these things through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, in our passage last week, we saw Jesus in conflict with the Pharisees over his practice of feasting with sinners and tax collectors. Uh, In our passage this morning, we find not so much a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees as a difference in practice between the two of them. And this time, not over the matter of feasting, who you feast with, but this time over the matter of fasting. Did you know that in 2019, intermittent fasting was the most Googled food-related search in the world. Fasting is something that our culture is increasingly learning more about, uh, but fasting as a religious practice is not something that we talk about very much in our circles. And so I I think it'd be helpful for us here at the outset uh, to get a broad biblical overview of what the Bible teaches on fasting. So here's how I want us to structure our time together this morning. I want us to ask four questions, ask and answer four questions. So first, what does the Bible teach about fasting? Second, why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting in this story? Third, when will Jesus' disciples fast and why? And then fourth and finally, I want us to ask, what can't you do with Jesus? What can't you do with Jesus? Those are our four points this morning. If you didn't get them, don't worry. I'll go through them as we progress. So first question, what does the Bible teach about 
fasting? Well, let me start out with a simple definition of fasting. So at its core, fasting is abstaining from food for a prolonged period of time. Some Christians talk about fasting from things other than food, such as technology or caffeine or Downton Abbey. And there's nothing wrong with talking that way. Uh, There can certainly be benefits from abstaining from all different kinds of creature comforts. But as best I can tell, whenever the Bible talks about fasting, it's talking specifically about abstaining from food. And it seems to have in view some of the things that happen to our bodies uh, when we do that. It's also important to know that fasting is not at all a uniquely Christian or even an originally Christian practice. So scholar Richard Foster observes that fasting is, quote, a practice found in all societies, cultures, and centuries. So you probably know that Muslims, Jews, and some Hindus fast as a part of their religion. Uh, In 2020, one survey recorded that intermittent fasting was the most popular diet in the United States. So whatever reasons others might have for fasting, uh, the fasting that we see in the Bible uh, seems to be undertaken not primarily for the sake of physical health, but for the sake of spiritual intentionality. So a quick survey of instances of fasting in the Bible uh, suggests that the Bible presents fasting as a means of cultivating repentance, humility, earnestness, or mourning. So the Bible presents fasting as a means of cultivating repentance, humility, earnestness, or mourning. Let me show that to you from the scriptures. So several times throughout the scriptures, we see that people fast in order to cultivate or to strengthen or express repentance. So the Bible very clearly teaches that food is a good thing. Uh, The enjoyment of food and even the comfort that we get from food, these are kind gifts from God. We don't need to feel bad about them. We should give thanks for them. But it seems like there are times when removing the comfort of food for a season, for a short season, can sort of help to amp up our resolve to repent and to turn from sin. So in the book of Joel, uh, twice when God calls his people to repent of their straying from him, he calls them to fast. So in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord says this. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. We also see a similar connection between fasting and repentance in the book of Jonah in chapter 3 when the king of Nineveh calls for repentance and along with it for fasting. So if you're, if you're familiar at all with the sin of your own heart, you can know that, or you'll know that it can be really hard to sort of steer or influence the deep desires of your heart, right? If I'm facing this way and someone says to me, David, turn around, it's very easy for me to turn my body the other way. Well, but imagine that your heart is pointed toward something, is in fact running toward something. Imagine that you really love the praise and approval of other people, and that you know that that takes sort of an unduly high place in your heart. Well, it could be a lot harder when God's word comes to us and says, don't fear people and live for their praise. It can be a lot harder to sort of turn your heart around toward desiring the praise of God and fearing him. 
really hard to change one's heart. In fact, ultimately, only God can change the heart. The Bible teaches that in the lives of his people, God often works through the spiritual disciplines of his people to change them. He works through our corporate worship. He works through our reading of his word. And the Bible presents fasting, abstaining from food for a season to focus on repentance as one, we, one means that God might use to help us turn from sin. So the Bible indicates fasting is a means of cultivating repentance. Second, we also see in Scripture that fas- fasting can be an expression of humility. So in Psalm 69, the psalmist talks about how he humbled his soul with fasting. Uh, in Ezra chapter 8, as Ezra leads a group of Jews on a journey to Jerusalem, a potentially dangerous journey, Ezra writes this in Ezra chapter 8. He says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. So fasting can be a way that we remind ourselves that, hey, we are totally dependent on God. And in that way, it can be a way to cultivate humility. And number three, fasting is also a way to cultivate earnestness. So in Ezra chapter 8, which I just read for you, Ezra isn't only fasting to sort of cultivate the virtue of humility in general, right? He's fasting in order to seek from the Lord a safe journey. There are other examples throughout Scripture in which people fast in order to sort of intensify their prayer life for a specific purpose. So in Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel intercedes for the people of Israel, He describes his behavior this way. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel seems to have felt that fasting sort of primed his soul to seek God in prayer with special fervor. And by the way, this seems to be the main way that fasting shows up in the New Testament. So as we saw a few weeks ago, immediately before his baptism, the Lord Jesus fasts in the wilderness for 40 days, immediately before the start of what? His public ministry. So it seems that Jesus' fasting is sort of a means of earnestly dedicating himself to the Lord for his father's mission, as well as a season in which in God's providence, he was tempted by the devil. Uh, In the book of Acts, the church in Antioch fasts and prays before they send out missionaries, Paul and Barnabas fast and pray before they appoint elders in the churches that they've planted. So number three, fasting seems to be a way to cultivate not only repentance, not only humility, but also earnestness, especially earnestness in prayer or in preparation for a spiritual work. And then fourth and finally, fasting is presented as a means of cultivating good and godly mourning or sadness. So we can trust that ultimately, Fasting will lead to greater joy in the Lord, but fasting isn't usually spoken about as an intrinsically happy thing in itself. Throughout the Bible, fasting is in fact regularly connected with, with sorrow. So in the late Old Testament period, it had become traditional for Jews to fast in commemoration of some national tragedies, such as the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and again, in the, the Joel passage that I read a moment ago, the Lord connects fasting with weeping in his call to repentance. In fact, that seems to be why fasting can help us 
to repent because a, a central ingredient in repentance, in turning from sin to the Lord, a central ingredient in, in that is godly sorrow over sin. And sometimes the enjoyment of food can get in the way of that kind of sorrow. So fasting is a means of cultivating sorrow when sorrow is appropriate, either in lamentation or in grief over sin. So there you have a quick overview of the Bible's teaching on fasting. Fasting is abstaining from food in order to cultivate repentance, humility, earnestness, or mourning. So one more thing to say before we move on. It's really important to note that in Jesus' day, fasting had become a really big deal in Jewish religion. So the words Mark uses in verse 18 to say that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, uh, it might be better to translate those words as they used to fast. So Mark is indicating that this was a regular habit of John's disciples and of the Pharisees. So some first century writings indicate that the Pharisees used to fast twice a week, in fact, from sunup to sundown. Remember the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who brags to God that he fasts twice a week. We don't know why the disciples of John were fasting. Uh, we know that at this point in the story, John the Baptist has been put in prison. Uh, so it could be that these disciples were fasting in mourning over their leader's suffering or even praying that he would be released. It could be that fasting was just one of the ways that John had taught his followers uh, to live out a life of earnest repentance. So that's an answer to the first question. What does the Bible teach about fasting? Well, given all that we've seen about fasting, it's understandable that some of the characters in our passage would be asking, why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting? All right, throughout the Gospels, Jesus certainly puts a premium on those four things that fasting cultivates. Right, humility, repentance, earnestness. Jesus is all about that, right? Again, Jesus' own ministry starts with a season of fasting. So the question asked of Jesus in verse 18 makes sense. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, look there at Jesus' answer in verse 19. Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Right, you see Jesus' answer. He says, because the bridegroom, clearly speaking of himself, is present, fasting is inappropriate at this time. So next month, Lord willing, I am headed to the wedding of a friend of mine from my days in Philadelphia. My friend is an American and he is marrying a woman from a Nigerian family. And one of the great things about that is that they get two weddings. They get a traditional American wedding and a traditional Nigerian wedding. And one of the things I'm told will happen at the Nigerian wedding is something called a money dance. Anyone ever heard of the wedding money dance? So the money dance is literally a ceremony in which the guests form a circle around the newlywed couple who are dancing in the middle, and people shower them with money 
and they get to keep it, right? That's much better than, you know, I, oh, I got you a toaster, you know. Here's some straight cash, right? My advice is take ones, right? One dollar bills, right? So why has the money dance not caught on in more cultures? I do not know. But this I do know. One thing that American weddings and Nigerian weddings and first century Jewish weddings and every other wedding ceremony that I've ever heard of have in common is that they are celebrations. Weddings are times of rejoicing over the bride and the groom and their love for one another. Right? In Jesus' day, a Jewish wedding would have been a massive feast that lasted up to seven days. You think we did partying well, right? There would have been eating and drinking and dancing at a wedding feast. And so as important as fasting might be, a wedding party is not the time or place for it. You see what Jesus is saying, right? He says, my presence here makes this a wedding party. And so fasting is inappropriate because I'm the bridegroom. Can you see what a massive claim Jesus is making about himself? He's saying, look, when I'm here, the rules are different just because I'm here. That's not the kind of thing that an enlightened religious teacher says about himself. That's the kind of thing that someone who thought he was the son of God says about himself. And here's what's even more shocking. If you know the Old Testament... Who is the bridegroom of God's people throughout the Old Testament? It's God. Yahweh is the bridegroom of Israel. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, God is promising to restore his people after their rebellion. And he says this, he says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Jesus is saying, why don't my disciples fast? Because I am the bridegroom. And while I'm here, it's time for rejoicing in me and in my great love for my bride. Saints, as has been mentioned numerous times in this service at this point, we today mourn the passing of our sister Lil Haymond, whom we loved. But brothers and sisters, you know, right, that Lil is not mourning right now. She is with the bridegroom. And however happy you are right now, I promise you, Lil is happier than you are because she is with Jesus Christ. By the way, saints, the bridegroom is not here on earth bodily anymore. The bridegroom is present with us by his Holy Spirit, and that is a cause for rejoicing. But there will be a day when the bridegroom comes back. If you like to think of it this way, the engagement happened 2,000 years ago, but the wedding has not yet taken place. And when the bridegroom returns, when the Lord Jesus comes, the joy 
of all God's people will be complete. That's when we'll enjoy the feast that Dave read about from Isaiah before, the feast of rich wine spread for all the peoples. And as Isaiah prophesied, we will say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. That's what's coming, saints, when the Lord Jesus returns. Because the bridegroom is with them, that's why Jesus' disciples are not fasting in this story. Jesus makes clear, though, that's not the whole picture of Christianity. So the third question is, when will Jesus' disciples fast? Jesus explains why his disciples are not fasting at this moment, but he explains that later, after this story, they will. Look there at verse 20. This is Jesus speaking. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. All right, so you understand, Jesus has made an amazing claim about himself by calling himself the bridegroom, but his use of imagery has been pretty simple and straightforward, right? I'm the bridegroom, and so because I'm here, it's a party, no fasting. That's very straightforward. But then Jesus' imagery gets a little surprising. Right? What happens next? He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. That's not normally what happens at a wedding, right? The bridegroom is going to be taken from these wedding celebrants. You would understand then that fasting might quickly turn to feast. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, feasting might quickly turn to fasting if that were to happen. But what does Jesus mean when he says that the bridegroom will be taken away? I think Jesus is talking about two different things here. So first, Bible scholars have noted that the word that Jesus uses there for taken away, that seems to be an allusion or a reference to a word that appears in Isaiah chapter 53, when Isaiah is predicting the sufferings of the Messiah that will save God's people. Isaiah, living 700 years before the Lord Jesus, prophesied this about how the Messiah would suffer to pay for the sins of God's people. Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 53, verse 8. He says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off or literally taken away out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So when Jesus says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, in part, he seems to be alluding to the fact that he is the one prophesied by, by Isaiah who will die for the sins of his people. He will be violently taken from them when he's arrested and killed by hostile authorities. See, this is what's so amazing about the love story of the Bible the story between God and his people, right? The Bible teaches that the bride and the groom were once very seriously estranged. God and the people that he had created to know and love him were separated and were in fact each other's enemies because of mankind's sin and rebellion against God. But the wonderful news of the gospel 
is that in his great love for sinners, the bridegroom has pursued his wayward bride at great cost to himself. The groom has paid the cost of reconciliation between God and his people. So think about it this way. Why are weddings such happy occasions? Well, if you'll pardon a really cynical joke, and this is a joke, in part, it's because the bride and the groom have not yet had the chance to do all that much fighting yet, right? And why do we fight with each other, right? Whether in marriage or in any other context. We fight in part because our hearts say, you have offended me, your offense has brought me misery, and so I'm going to vent my misery on you, and you need to pay to make things right. right. That's kind of at the root of a lot of fighting that goes on between humans. You have offended, and so you need to pay to make it right. Well, on the cross, as Jesus dies for the sins of his people, this is what Jesus says. He says, you have offended, and you can't pay because the cost of offending a holy God is an eternity of separation from him under his punishment. But even though you have offended, I will pay. I will pay what it takes to reconcile us together. I, by dying on the cross, will satisfy the righteous wrath of God against sin so that anyone who will turn and believe in me might be forgiven, might be reconciled to Jesus. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first let me just say you're you're super welcome to be here. We are thrilled that you've come. We hope you feel welcome. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the thing you most need to hear is not something about fasting and what the Bible says about that. The thing that you most need to hear is that we all, by nature and by choice, are sinners against a holy God, and we deserve his wrath and punishment. But in his great love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die as a substitute for sinners who have rebelled against him so that anyone who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus Christ can be reconciled to God, can be forgiven. More than that, can be made into the bride of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about what that means, please don't hesitate to talk to any, any member of our church after this service. You can talk to me. I'll be at the back. Talk to anyone you've seen up here, any of our members. We'd be thrilled to help you learn more about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. So when Jesus in this passage speaks about when the bridegroom is taken away, he seems in part to be alluding to his upcoming death for the sins of his people. It seems like Jesus' words are also relevant, though, for the time between Jesus' ascent into heaven after his death and resurrection and his return, right, which has not yet happened. So it seems like Jesus' words are relevant to when we live right now. Right? The scriptures teach that after Jesus died and rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them, and then he ascended to heaven where he sits at God's right hand until the time appointed for his return. It seems like Jesus' words are relevant to that. Jesus was not taken away violently when he ascended into heaven. But the truth is that the bridegroom is no longer bodily present with us on earth. The Christian life is a life of anticipating the return of the bridegroom. 
So it does seem that Jesus is teaching that the period between his ascent into heaven and his return will be marked by his disciples, on occasion, fasting. Jesus thinks that's a normal thing for Christians to do. So near the beginning of Mark's gospel, we saw that Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. In Jesus, the bridegroom has come. The kingdom has started. Well, as the story of the gospel unfolds, what we find is that Jesus came to inaugurate God's kingdom or to start it in seed form, but not yet to consummate it, not yet to bring the kingdom in its fullness. The festivities have begun, but the wedding is not yet. And so until Jesus comes, fasting can be an appropriate thing for Christians to do. So brothers and sisters, Jesus' words are a call to us to consider how fasting might help us follow Jesus more wholeheartedly. Maybe there's a particularly acute sin struggle in your life, and fasting might help you cultivate repentance. Maybe there's something really hard and painful in your life, and fasting might help you express humble dependence on God for help. And maybe you really need the Lord's help with a decision, and fasting might help sharpen your prayerfulness. And maybe you're sad, and fasting might actually help you mourn and lament and process and grieve and cope. So just really briefly, let me give you four biblical principles on how to fast. Just really briefly, four biblical pre- principles on how to fast. Number one, don't fast for show. Jesus told us, if possible, to keep our fasting secret so that we don't fast in order to get credit from other people for how holy we are. He told us to fast so that our Father who sees in secret sees. It's not a sin if someone finds out, but don't fast for show. Number two, don't fast in order to earn anything from God. You cannot earn the love of God the Father the grace of God the Son, the comfort of the Holy Spirit by fasting. You cannot wipe your sins away by abstaining from food. If you fast in order to earn from God, your fasting is not spiritually helpful. It's spiritually dangerous, right? Fasting is about humility, is about how we can't earn. It's about how we need and how we're dependent So if we turn fasting into performing and earning from God, we've we've missed the point. And number three, don't don't focus more on your fasting than on God, right? The point of fasting is to remove a distraction so that we might focus on the Lord. The fact that you're abstaining from food for a season shouldn't become the focus, right? Again, that defeats the purpose. And then fourth, don't fast under compulsion, Don't fast because you feel like you have to. If you had to, there would be a very clear command in Scripture that you have to fast, but there isn't. There's just an expectation that this is a thing that Christians might do. God hasn't given us a super clear command in this regard. It seems like God wants us to choose freely how and when we might do this. So I think Paul's words about giving from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, might be wisely applied to fasting. There Paul says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
for God loves a cheerful giver. It seems wise to say, if, if you fast, each one should fast as he is decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not because the sermon said so this week. For God loves a cheerful giver. Maybe we could say a cheerful faster. I said four, I've got five. Fifth and finally, fast mindful of the day that we will feast with the Lord Jesus. When you're really hungry and you're about to break your fast, take just a moment and remember that even better than the food you're about to enjoy will be the day when we feast with our God at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Fast, mindful of the day when we will feast with the Lord Jesus. It's appropriate that Christians might fast now because for all of eternity, we will not be fasting. We will be feasting on the goodness of our God when Jesus returns. When will Jesus' disciples fast? In the days when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Because the bridegroom is not yet with us again, as those who wait his return, sometimes we fast. Fourth and final question this morning. We've seen what the Bible teaches about fasting. We've seen why Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. We've seen when they will fast. Fourth and final question to close. What can't you do with Jesus? What can't you do with Jesus? Did you notice our passage doesn't end with Jesus' answer to the question about fasting? Jesus kind of goes on in verses 21 and 22 uh, to give us two more images or two more parables. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So Jesus gives us two images, both of which are about the incompatibility of old things and new things. It's really easy to visualize what Jesus is talking about with the patch, right? If you had a piece of your clothing that suddenly shrank, you would understand that your garment would be ruined, right? If you've got a hole in your garment and you sew an unshrunk piece on it and then you wash it and that piece shrinks, what you're going to end up with is a worse hole. That's intuitive. Well, the reason that you can't put old new wine, sorry, in old wineskins is less intuitive to us. Uh, but let me explain. In those days, wine would finish its fermentation process after it was stored in these leather wineskins out of which it would have been drunk. Apparently, glass bottles were harder to make in that day. And so as the wine finished fermenting in these kind of leather sacks, uh, the wine would have expanded and stretched the skins. And that's okay up to a point, Unless you put new wine that still needs to expand in skins that have already been stretched and stretched and stretched, and then what happens when the wine expands more? The skins burst, and both the wine and the skins are ruined. All right, so what does that have to do with Jesus? 
Why is Jesus telling us these things? Well, Jesus is taking the opportunity to point out that he is bringing a new thing, a thing that won't fit into the old ways of doing things. Right? The Pharisees and John's disciples, they've established a system of religious life based on God's Old Testament law. And Jesus is not critiquing that at all. Jesus is not criticizing the Old Testament. He's not even critiquing the way that John and the Pharisees are fasting. What Jesus is saying is that with his arrival, now that he's come, the kingdom of God has come in a new way. So much so that what it looks like for God's people to worship him now that Jesus has come is about to change forever. See, all that God had revealed to his people in the Old Testament was good. It was true. The law of Moses, it was a good garment. It was an adequate wineskin for a time. But Jesus didn't come to be another little patch on an old garment. He didn't come to be a little bit more of the old wine. Jesus didn't come to slot neatly into Judaism to be sort of the next Jewish prophet. Jesus brought with him an entirely new thing, a new way of worshiping the Lord, a new covenant even, as we heard from our New Testament reading from Hebrews. Right, the, as the New Testament reveals, the new wine of the new covenant the new way that God relates to his people through Jesus is going to require a new shape for the people of God. God's people are no longer going to be bound by the civil and ceremonial aspects of Moses' law. That was the point of our Old Testament scripture readings. And again, just to be really clear, there wasn't anything wrong with God's revelation in the Old Testament. It was the perfect preparation for God's Messiah. But now that the Messiah has come, the elements of that revelation, which were preparatory, they need to give way. So what we find throughout the rest of Mark's gospel is that some people in Jesus' day had gotten so comfortable with the preparatory system and with the authority and the influence that they had carved out for themselves within that system that they resented the new thing that Jesus was bringing. There was indeed a great tear between the Pharisees' insistence on the old and Jesus' inauguration of the new. There was an explosion between Jesus and those who wanted to hold on to their power and prestige that they would have lost because of his coming. So what does any of this have to do with us today? Well, I don't think any of us are in exactly the same danger this morning. My guess is that no one here is tempted to prefer a form of first century Pharisaism to Christianity. It's probably not what you wrestled with all week. But I think the broader point here is very much applicable to us. Because you see, what you can't do with Jesus is slot him into a life that's centered and organized around anything else. You can't make Jesus into a little patch to cover up a hole in your life. Jesus can't be one of the things you've got going on. He must be all or nothing. 
That's not to say he wasn't all in the Old Testament. There's a significant degree of continuity in the fact that the substance of the Old Testament is Christ himself. But that's not what the Jewish leaders were holding on to. They wanted to make Jesus a little patch on their system of life. Jesus cannot be a little patch to make some of your problems go away. He can't be a little more old wine on top of all else you've got going. See, listen, if in your heart of hearts, your life is all about achievement, your life is all about the glory that you get for yourself by succeeding, then you might say, oh, wow, Jesus can help me succeed. Jesus can help me meet my goals. I might even succeed more if I have Jesus in my life. So I'll just pop Jesus on my coat here like a little patch, and he'll make it better, right? That could be a temptation. Or if in your heart of hearts, your life is about comfort and ease and pleasure, right? Enjoying your 80-year ride on earth to the max. You might say, well, statistically, people are more happy when they are religious, and church makes for a great community. And I do appreciate Christians' sense of morality, so I'll just pop Jesus on here as a little patch. He'll make things better, as long as I don't take him too seriously, right? I don't want to get radical about this whole Jesus thing. Or if in your heart of hearts, your life is all about your image, how you seem to others, or how you appear to yourself, right? You might be tempted to say, wow, Jesus looks good on me. Being a Christian does so much for my image. I'm going to pop Jesus on there. He's going to make things better. Or if your life is all about your relationships, you may say, Jesus is a great patch for the hole in my relationships. Right? Jesus helps my relationships go so much better. He connects me with delightful people, and that's, that's how he helps me. Or if your life is all about how your kids turn out, if that's what you're looking to, to define you, you might say, Jesus can help me get the kind of kids that I want. That's the great value of Jesus, that he gets me into a community and keeps my kids in line. Jesus, what a great garment patch. What a marvelous parenting tool. Friends, that's what you can't do with Jesus. You can't fit Jesus in or add Jesus on to a life that is not fundamentally about him. If you try, it will lead to a tear. It will lead to burst expectations because Jesus demands to be at the center of your life if he's going to be there at all. Later in Mark's gospel, we read these words. It says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Friend, try to make anything that isn't Jesus your highest love, your greatest priority, your fundamental identity, and you will lose your life. It will all amount to lostness in eternity. But lose your life, displace yourself, and embrace 
Jesus, the bridegroom, as supremely worthy, as Lord, as God, as the sun around which all your planets revolve, and you will enjoy the new wine of life in Jesus' kingdom now and forever. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't come to make the church his casual, part-time, long-term girlfriend. Jesus came to die and rise in order to betroth the church to himself as his dear and beloved bride. What a marvelous bridegroom we've been given in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray our God would help us to return his love. Father, we confess that we have had small views of your son, Jesus. Lord, at times we've wanted just a little bit of help from him here, a little bit of help from him there, and not to embrace him as king and as Lord, as supreme treasure, as bridegroom. Lord, would you reveal to our hearts, remind our hearts how precious the Lord Jesus Christ is, how wonderful a bridegroom he is to his people. How sweet and all-surpassingly satisfying the new wine of relationship with you through him is, that we might give him his place in our lives. Or give us prudence as we think about fasting. Deliver us from practicing it wrongly or legalistically or unhappily. Lord, would you teach us to pursue you with all of our hearts, all of our days, for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.